Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be in the, the first 10 verses of 1 Timothy 4 today. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a pew Bible in front of you, a black one. Um, this is on page 992. 992. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of God. May he impress its eternal truths upon our hearts. Please be seated. Well, as I've gotten older, I've definitely made more of a concerted effort to think about my fitness and, and my health so that I can do some of the things that I love. Uh, many of you know that I love to snack. And I often tell my kids that uh, I, I put effort into working out sometimes so that I can uh, have the luxury of snacking. And the other day, one of my kids looked at me as I started to, to sit down and said, what are you going to do now, Baba? Sit in your chair, watch the Lakers game, and eat some snacks? <laughs> Sounds about right. Um, that's why I have some workout equipment in my, my, my garage. You know, as I've gotten older, I've also started to take supplements for my joints. I've started to do certain exercises just so my knees don't feel as creaky. And I'm realizing with greater clarity each passing year that without the right diet and without enough sleep and Without a regular training routine, it's hard to stay in shape. It's, it's even harder to make gains. At my age, it's much easier to just plateau or to decline physically. So there are certain things that I now know that I have to do if I, if I want to maintain a level of strength or keep trying to play basketball or eat ice cream without feeling super guilty or, or just keep up with my daughter as I'm trying to teach her how to ride a bike. I've learned that I need to be training myself the right way if I want to enjoy my life to the fullest. 
And the same idea carries over to our Christian lives. Have you ever felt like you are going backward in your faith? And maybe wondered why? Maybe you don't feel particularly close to God or his people. Maybe the desire to serve him just isn't very strong for you. Or do you have, perhaps feel like you've just plateaued? Maybe you have developed enough Christian habits to keep coming to church and meeting with other believers, even serving in various ministries, but you don't really feel like you're making spiritual gains. And part of the reason many of us stagnate in our Christian faith is because we aren't properly training ourselves to live godly lives. We might have bulked up and gotten stronger for a time, but in our present season of life, we haven't spent much time in the gym of godliness. In our passage today, Paul writes about how all Christians need to be training themselves for godliness. In order to live the way God designed us to live, there is a certain commitment we must have to working out our faith. And at the beginning of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, Paul essentially tells Timothy that there is a wrong way to train and a right way to train. As Christians, not only do we need to regularly be training ourselves spiritually, but we also need to be on guard against doing it the wrong way. Now, it's been several months since we were last in this book, so let me just remind you that Paul is writing to his disciple and ministry partner, Timothy. And he's writing to him about how to care for the church in Ephesus. One reason that he wrote was because many false teachers were leading the people of God astray there. And so Paul warned Timothy and the church about some of the men that had rejected the truth. And Paul exhorted Timothy to make things right in the church by establishing the right priorities and clarifying the proper roles for men and women and appointing the right kind of leaders, qualified elders and deacons, so that the church could function as the household of God, so that it could function as a pillar and buttress of the truth of the gospel. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul provided a summary of that gospel message, and that's where we left off in this letter. But here in chapter 4, Paul returns to the topic of false teachers. These false teachers were prime examples of those who had been training the wrong way. Their training regimen had caused them to depart from the faith. And Paul notes two specific ways that they went wrong. We, we see this in verses 1 through 5. This is the wrong way for Christians to train. The wrong way to train. And the first specific way in which these teachers went wrong is by heeding demonic doctrine. You train the wrong way by heeding demonic doctrine. In verse 1, Paul writes, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. We don't know if Paul is referring to a direct revelation that he received from the Holy Spirit, but it is clear from other parts of Scripture that the Spirit warned about people leaving the faith. In Mark chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus said that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Paul himself warned 
the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 29, that fierce wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock. The Bible is full of clear warnings to expect false teaching and false ideologies to weasel their way into the church. And this will happen in latter times, which includes the final days right before Jesus returns when the world would be led astray by the Antichrist. But John reminds us in 1 John 2.18 that it is the last hour now as well. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and working right now. So we, like the Ephesian church Paul was writing to in this letter, are living in these latter times. And so we are to expect that people in the church will depart from the faith. We are to expect that people will apostatize. And that means that some of you sitting here today need to be warned about the temptation to renounce the faith you claim. And Paul isn't saying that Christians should live in fear, that we can actually lose our salvation. There are many other passages in Scripture that remind us that those who are truly saved are secure in Christ. But in the church, there are those who claim to be Christians, who believe themselves to be Christians, who present themselves as Christians. But in the end, they will depart from the faith because the saving gospel of Jesus Christ never fully took root in their lives. How will these people fall away? Well, Paul tells us at the end of verse 1, they will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And notice what Paul writes there. They will devote themselves to. They will, they will heed. They will pay attention to. They will read about. They will, they will listen to. They will accept teaching that is at its source demonic. And this will come through insincere hypocritical teachers and influencers who should know better, but they lie because their own consciences have been seared. Their consciences don't function right anymore. They're cauterized. Their consciences are unfeeling when it comes to what is wrong. And they have so deeply bought into these demonic lies that they can't see how wrong they are. This is what happened in Ephesus. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul had to publicly discipline two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, because their consciences had become seared. They rejected the truth and they shipwrecked their faith. The devil is the father of lies, and his demons perpetuate those lies. And the demons can work in obvious ways to turn people away from God, but they often work through seemingly innocuous philosophies and theories and ideologies that creep into our culture. And these teachings tend to have a, a veneer of truth to them that make them look very attractive. But underneath, they are flimsy and, and false at their core. We see this throughout our society today. Many have adopted a worldview that is informed by naturalism. Now, naturalism rightly points us back to the regular laws and mechanisms God has instituted in this world. But its lie is that it denies the God who created this world. Others are committed to 
critical theories that rightly recognize the oppression that exists in this world, which does need to be combated. But they wrongly generalize and categorize people according to selective and arbitrary prejudices. Unhinged sexuality and homosexuality today have taken God's beautiful design for relationships and intimacy and perverted them into a means of self-gratification. In many Asian cultures, ancestor worship takes the good and right honoring of parents to the wrong extreme of idolization. And we could go on and on and on. Demonic teachings have woven themselves into this world in so many different ways. And, and they hide behind a mere modicum of truth, but it's enough truth to deceive and attract. And when we begin to allow our minds to be trained on the theories and belief systems of this world, we starve ourselves of the truth that we actually need to grow strong in our faith. We run the risk of heeding those doctrines that will eventually sear our consciences that we will turn away from the truth of the gospel. And so this is one serious way in which we are tempted to train wrongly in this life. But Paul gets even more precise or exact in verses 3 to 5. Not only were we tempted to train the wrong way by heeding demonic doctrine, more specifically we train the wrong way by rejecting God's common grace. The wrong way to train is by rejecting God's common grace. Now in verses 3 to 5, Paul moves from the generally demonic influence in this world to the specific working out of that influence that was happening in the Ephesian church. It doesn't seem like the Ephesians were ne necessarily tempted by naturalism or ancestor worship or critical theories, but they were being tempted to follow a kind of asceticism that seemed spiritual, but was actually a denial of God's good gifts to them. In Ephesus, false teachers were forbidding marriage, and they were requiring abstinence from foods. Now, we aren't given the exact reasoning why marriage and certain foods were being prohibited, but it likely came from a combination of Jewish traditions about food in a sense that sexuality and marriage and the indulging in our appetites was not the path to, to higher spirituality. Rather, by denying these things, false teachers were likely telling people that they could live a more committed, a more devoted, austere life before God. But the problem was that this teaching was a blatant contradiction to God's teaching. And Paul writes at the end of verse 3 that the foods being prohibited, and by extension marriage as well, were, were all created by God to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. These were things that God wanted his people to receive with thanksgiving. They were gifts from him. But the church was rejecting his gifts. They had been given wonderful things, but they were refusing to use them. God is not properly worshipped when we deny his good gifts to us. Now, this kind of asceticism was causing some in the church to deny God's grace and really institute a new form of religion that sought spirituality through obeying rules God had never intended. It was an asceticism that was actually legalism, trying to work one's way to God. And when we deny God's common grace to us, we also fall into this trap. Now, oftentimes as Christians, we can be tempted to set up rules to protect us 
from the temptations of the world. And parents and those in positions of authority are great at this. We can set up rules about not dating and not watching certain entertainment and not using screens and not drinking or smoking or using birth control. Now, there is wisdom to some of these rules. We know that Paul himself advocated for Christians to consider singleness in order to have unhindered service to God. And there were times in which Paul also fasted. But, but the difference is that Paul never actually prohibited believers from marrying or, or eating what they wanted. He, he never made his suggestions or preferences requirements. And so we need to be very careful that our wise principles don't become demonic prohibitions. We need to be careful that we don't begin to enact our own modern forms of asceticism that keep us and God's people from enjoying God's grace. This is what happened to the Jewish people. The Pharisees in Jesus' day couldn't see past all their traditions to see the Messiah in front of them. This is what has led many in fundamentalist circles to recoil from Christianity because there were just too many onerous rules. Of course, not everything in this world is to be accepted and embraced. We live in a fallen world. God's good creation has been tainted by sin. Certain perversions of God's good design, they have to be rejected. But we need to be careful that we don't throw out what is good as we discern what is evil. This is what Paul says in verse 4. He writes, For everything, everything created by God is good. Marriage between a man and a woman was created by God and it's good. All foods created by God are meant to be enjoyed. Now sure, in the Old Testament, God instructed Israel to avoid eating things deemed unclean. But this wasn't because there was something inherently wrong in eating those things. Instead, God instituted those laws for a time in order that his people might be set apart from all the pagan nations around them. But in the New Testament, Jesus said there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. And Peter was famously told in Acts 20, or Acts 10, I should say, 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. You know, today for the Christian, nothing from God's original creation is to be rejected, Paul says, if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Well, what does Paul mean by that? Well, he means that when we properly understand the goodness of God's creation as revealed to us through his word, we should receive his good gifts with a prayer of thanksgiving. And Jesus modeled this when he gave a word of blessing before his meals and thanked God for them. That's one of the reasons why we say a, a word of blessing and thanks before our meals today. It's not that just praying somehow mystically makes our food or other things holy. But rather, when we give thanks in prayer to God for things that he has provided, and we understand that God has provided all those things out of his grace to us, because that has been revealed to us through his word, we gain the right perspective about those things as gifts from God that are good. This is how we're to live as Christians. We're to enjoy all that God has given us. Christianity is not meant to be this negative, can't do this, can't do that religion. No, Christianity is meant to be lived positively. 
That's what Paul is writing about here. He's saying everything created by God is good. We are to live in the freedom of God's grace. Jesus has saved us from our bondage to sin and helps us to see this world the right way. He frees us to live according to God's intended purposes for the world, to live lives thankfully in worship of him. Christians should be the most positive people in this world. Now, yes, we need to deny ourselves and turn away from what is sinful, but asceticism that purposely refuses God's gifts is not the answer. That moves us away from God. It moves us away from God's good design. Instead, we need to learn to savor what is truly good so that we will naturally reject what is tainted and fallen. Now, some of you here today are tempted to have an ascetic view of life. And Paul is writing to you. And he's saying, don't so overprotect and don't so overcompensate for the fallenness of this world that you keep yourself from what is actually good. Now, I understand that some people grow up in homes with bad marriages and they're tempted to reject marriage altogether. Some people hear of the health drawbacks of too much meat and they refuse it completely. Some of you know the news and you're tuned into current trends and you're worried for your children and so you are tempted to insulate them from the influence of this world. But when you witness a, a blessed marriage and you taste the juiciness of a piece of perfectly cooked bacon and you're exposed to the wonderful creativity and ingenuity of even pagan men and women. Those things should give, make you, should cause you to give praise to the maker of heaven and earth. And they should draw you more and more into the goodness of his creation so that you allow the beauty of what is good to motivate you instead of the fear of what is bad. Church, we can't afford to adopt a training regimen that is so strict and rigorous that it actually keeps us from exercising the muscles that God wants us to develop so that we find our full enjoyment in him. That's the wrong way to train. If you, he if you train by heeding demonic doctrine like the kind that causes you to abstain from God's common grace, you're getting weaker. You're not getting stronger as a Christian. Now, as we move on to verses 6 to 10, we find Paul providing us with the right way to train, the right way to train. And the first thing Paul mentions is actually a continuation of what he just wrote. And in verses 6 to 7, he further highlights how the right way to train is by training your mind upon God's word. How do you train the right way? Well, you do it by training your mind upon God's word. In verse 6, Paul turns his attention back to Timothy. But he's writing to him as a representative of the church. These instructions are directed to Timothy, but intended for the whole church. And, and Paul writes, if you put these things, meaning the things that he just mentioned in verses 1 through 5, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So Paul is simply saying to Timothy, make sure you put truth before God's people. He doesn't use a word like preach or, or teach here. He just generally wants Timothy to make sure that he is setting truth before the church. This is the primary duty of those called to be ministers among God's people. And how good a servant of Christ is, is measured by how he points others to the truth of God's word. And he can only achieve this if he himself is being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that others have taught. Now we know that Timothy was exposed to good doctrine from his mother and grandmother. 
He was mentored by the Apostle Paul. So Paul was really calling him to double down on the truth that he had learned. And and in verse 7, to have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Once again, it's clear here in verse 7 that we cannot fill our minds with the silliness of this world if we want to train the right way. Just like we saw in verses 1 through 5, if we devote ourselves to deceitful spirits and demonic teachings, we'll be tempted to leave the faith. And so train properly. God's truth must be a regular part of your diet. If you, if you try to make gains in the gym without protein and enough nutrient-rich calories, you're fighting a losing battle. As Christians, we, we can't keep on ingesting the sugary, fried, empty calories of news and theories and opinions and trendy suggestions that are all over websites and podcasts and TikTok and X and Substack. Of course, it's appropriate to know what's out there and what people are saying. It's okay to have some sugar now and then. It's not wrong. It's good sometimes to get a taste and to know what flavors are currently trending. But the bulk of our diet it needs to be the truth of God's word. Otherwise, we jeopardize all our other training activity. All Christians need to be regularly savoring scripture, dining on, on doctrine, juicing on the grace of the gospel. One meal a week on Sundays just doesn't cut it. Hey, to keep your spiritual muscles from atrophying, you need a regular diet of the Bible. You need to regularly remind yourself of the glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you getting your nutrients? Or does your diet need to change? Do you need to cut back on that sugar? Do you need to hold off on that greasy takeout? So many of us are weak in our faith because we're not feeding our minds the right things. How do you start if you're not doing this? How do you start? Well, J.C. Ryle provides some great tips for those that want to grow in reading their Bibles in his book, Practical Religion. And he, he gives eight tips there, and I just want to mention them very, very briefly. Okay, eight tips from J.C. Ryle to kind of get the right nutrients into your diet. First, he says, begin reading your Bible this very day. Okay, begin reading your Bible this very day. He says the way to do a thing is to do it, and the way to read the Bible is actually to read it. It's not merely meaning or wishing or resolving or intending or thinking about it, which will advance you one step. You must positively read. Okay, so first, begin reading your Bible this very day. Second, read your Bible with an earnest desire to understand it. Read your Bible with an earnest desire to understand it. He says, settle it down in your mind as a general principle that a Bible not understood is a Bible that does no good. So say to yourself, as often as you read it, what is it all about? Dig for the meaning like a man digging for gold. Read the Bible with an earnest desire to understand it. Number three, he says, read the Bible with childlike faith and humility. Read it with childlike faith and humility. Resolve to believe whatever you find there, however much it may run counter to your own desires and prejudices. Resolve to receive heartily every statement of truth, whether you like it or not. Okay, fourth, he says, read the Bible in the spirit of obedience and self-application. Read it in a spirit of obedience and self-application. He says, sit down to the study of it with a daily determination that you will live by its rules, rest on its statements, and act on its commands. Fifth, read the Bible daily. Read the Bible daily. 
Do as the Israelites did in the wilderness. Gather your manna fresh every morning. Choose your own seasons and hours. Do not scramble over and hurry your reading. Give your Bible the best and not the worst part of your time. But of whatever plan you pursue, let it be a rule of your life to visit the throne of grace in God's word every day. Six, he says, read the Bible, or read all of the Bible, I should say. Read all of the Bible and read it in an orderly way. Read all of the Bible and read it in an orderly way. And he reminds us of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is profitable. The seventh, he says, read the Bible fairly and honestly. Read it fairly and honestly. Determine to take everything in its plain, obvious meaning and regard all forced interpretations with great suspicion. And then finally, he says, read the Bible with Christ continually in view. Read the Bible with Christ continually in view. Now, those are, those are some great tips to begin training your mind upon God's Word. Your, your training as a believer needs to start with the right food. But not only should you be training your, your mind upon God's Word, you should also be training your hardest for godliness. To train the right way, you should train your hardest for godliness. And that's what we see in the rest of our passage. At the end of verse 7, we find a critical command. Paul tells Timothy, rather, train yourself for godliness. And the Greek word for train here is gymnasi. Literally, get in the gym. This is an active imperative. Get to work now. And the goal of this training is godliness. Godliness is the outworking of true knowledge of God. It is a, a life lived for God. Godliness is right belief that is coupled with obedience. It's living a God-centered life. When you start eating protein-rich foods and upbringing your calories, you give your body what it needs to get stronger. But everyone knows if you just eat and eat meat and you don't work out, you don't build muscle, you just get bigger. And that often happens to Christian exposed to lots of good teaching and rich doctrine. And that happens to Christians in churches like ours. They eat and eat and just get puffed up with knowledge. They start debating the finer points of the fat content of this doctrine and the marbling of that interpretation. But they don't use that protein they've consumed to build muscle. And it just weighs them down instead of making them stronger. They don't live out what they know. They've started the training process right by feeding upon good stuff. But they haven't actually trained themselves for the goal of godliness. They may know the truth of God, but they haven't experienced godliness. As Christians, we must be committed to working hard for the sake of living a God-centered life. A life that delights in knowing God. A life that delights in obeying Him. Paul hammers this point home in verse 8. He writes, while bodily trading is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul compares physical training with spiritual training here. Working out, getting fit, bodily training is of some value. It doesn't have no value. It just has limited value. Why? Well, because its benefits are restricted to this life. On the other hand, godliness has all value. It has value in every way, Paul says. 
because it promises to benefit you not only in this life, but also in the life to come. And so much of our activity in life is training for things of this life. And for some of us, it, it is working out. We buy into all the advertisements on Instagram and TV, beckoning us to be fit and toned, muscular and lean. But for others, it's another pursuit. But it also only has temporal benefits. We train hard to excel in school. We train hard for a certain hobby of ours. We train hard at work to make a certain salary. We, we train hard to have nice skin or healthy hair. We train hard to travel or buy what we want. And we pay tuition, we invest in tools, we give our time and energy, we practice, we buy products, we research deals. We are all training for something in this world. In all of those things have some value. They do have value in this present life. They aren't things that we have to immediately reject. Like we saw earlier, we are to enjoy all the good things God has created for us with thanksgiving. But when we're training just for those things, our training is merely some value, not all value training. What is the kind of all value training that we as Christians need to be committed to? It's training for godliness. Because godliness has benefits both now and into eternity. And in verse 9, Paul emphasizes the importance of this. He writes, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What, what Paul is saying is don't sleep on this. This is something you need to fully accept. The best thing you can focus on in this life as a Christian is growing in your godliness. The best thing that you can focus on in your life as a believer, as a son of the living God, is your Godliness. Godliness is what you need to be actively working for as a believer. And that's why Paul wrote in verse 10, For to this end we toil and, and strive. The goal of godliness is what we should be toiling after and striving for, desiring, putting in the hours to obtain. Because as believers, like Paul, we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We strive after godliness because unlike others in this world, we have a hope beyond this life in the Savior from our sins who rose from the dead. And Paul says that Jesus came to, to save all people, that is, all kinds of people. Jesus is the only way for mankind to be saved, but though he came to be the potential Savior of all people, he's the actual Savior only of those who believe. But if you believe in Jesus... If you believe that he is the son of the living God who came to this earth to die on the cross to be your savior, you have a hope that goes beyond this life. And that should change your goals for this life. You move from some value living to all value living. You toil and train for godliness. Oh, what does that look like? Well, it means feeding upon scripture like we have already mentioned. It means getting into the habit of thanking God for all his grace in your life. It means spending your time and resources and energy to change the, the trajectory of eternal souls in need of saving. It means denying yourself in order to love others. It, it means training yourself to trust in God's timing and plan. It means thinking more and more about God and the tremendous blessings he has provided in the gospel each day. It means praying regularly to God. It means turning from sin. It means greater humility and patience. But in order to do all of this, 
we've got to have a plan. We need the regular rhythms of the church, and we need spiritual disciplines to keep us on track. We, we need to have Scripture ready in our minds to guard us from temptations to sin. We, we need others to train with, to encourage and motivate us when we're feeling tired or lazy. Are you training for godliness? Are you training to live a God-centered life? If you feel like you need some help, let me just suggest that you take the initiative to get it started with at least one thing. Or maybe it's getting into that Bible reading habit. Maybe it's committing to praying more this week. Maybe you just, you just need to spend some time meditating on the truth of the gospel. Maybe you need to cut down on some of the junk you're consuming. Maybe you need to join a small group. Maybe there's a relationship you just need to invest in a bit more. Maybe you just need to start by thanking God for at least one thing in your life each day. But make sure you start. Start training the right way. Train your mind upon God's truth. And start training hard for the sake of godliness. RBF stands for Redeemer Bible Fellowship around here. It's the name of our ministry. But I always still like to think of ways it can stand for other things and I think we can also think of it as really buff friends, okay? As a church, we've all got to get stronger in our faith. Because demons are always working to weaken God's people. So let's commit to training together, okay? Avoiding the false teachings of this world, accepting God's common grace, enjoying it, ingesting God's faithful word, and putting in the work to live God-centered lives. Let's spend time together in the gym of godliness. Let's become really buff friends as we live for the Redeemer, okay, nourished on the truth of the Bible, and enjoying fellowship with one another. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness in giving us access to all that you have created and all the goodness that you have provided for us in this world. Oh, help us to embrace it, embrace those things with, with thanksgiving, to enjoy all your many benefits. Also train us, help us to train really in, in this world uh, that is threatening to weaken us. Help us to train uh, so that we might gain strength in our faith. Help us to be committed to your word and to each other committed to living out lives of godliness, to obeying your word. Help us to encourage each other in this. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.